safer um, and uh, please give me your other value. Piles and piles of snow. 
And they said to someone, quick, run, get them down, run them. They ran up, grabbed them down, Sishmai of the words, Royal Chalos, the Shabbos, this man is worthy to desecrate the Shabbos. They lit a fire, warmed up some water, resuscitated him. And when the poor man says, I would have loved to have learned, I would have loved to have been someone, but I just couldn't have done it. They say to him, you know more than was Hillel. If Hillel succeeded, so too could it be. And then the usher, the wealthy man, comes forward. And the wealthy man says this story. I have 700 men in my employ. The entire town came to my doorstep. How could I possibly become a Torah scholar who was well beyond what I could have done? And they said to him, you were no more wealthy than was the Willows of Harsin. And the Lord goes on to tell us the events of the Willows of Harsin's life. The Willows of Harsin was an awesome, tremendous masmid. He spent every waking moment completely involved in learning. He would go from base nebish to base nebish. He had almost no involvement in this world. His father was a very wealthy businessman. His father owned land. In those days, if you owned land, you were the land lord. You set the taxes. You made the laws. You were a very powerful, very, very influential individual. Elizabeth Carson's father owned 1,000 cities, a wealth that's hard to imagine. And when Elizabeth Carson's father died, all of that wealth was left to Elizabeth Carson. And from the moment that he inherited that great wealth, he didn't change, didn't become a different person. There were many, many people to take care of the affairs of the estate. He remained the same individual, totally, completely dedicated to total learning. And when the wealthy man stands in front of Hashem and says, I would have wanted to, would have loved to, but couldn't, they say to him, you were no more wealthy than was Rebbelezer Karsim. Nimtza comes out, Hilo Chayim Samir, Rebbelezer Karsim Chayim Sashim. And that's the one. And I'd like to share with you guys a question that my regular Shiva Zatzal asked on this tomorrow. And that question has two parts to it. There are many, many reasons why a guy won't succeed in learning. Not a bad background, in a good head, bad ADD, bad experiences, bad friends. There are many, many reasons why a guy will not be able to make it in learning. Some of them are actually legitimate, and many aren't. If you tell me a story here, or if I tell you a story here, you won't know the difference, you can't tell. But the problem with this Gemara is, this discussion is being held in front of other Shabbatophon. When the Ani has already passed this world, his body's in the ground, he's separated, and he's standing in front of Hashem. Hashem is a very fine judge. Hashem should look at this Ani and say, Mr. Poor Man, your stories are legitimate or they're rough. Question number one is, why does Hashem need Hillel? Well, if Hillel could do it, so too could you. Hashem doesn't need Hillel. Hashem can peer into the essence of the poor man and say, Mr. Poor Man, you could have or could not have, your stories are legit or not. Question one is, who needs Hillel? But question number two is a bit more pointed. The Groh tells us that the most painful moment in a being's life is not a fatal car crash, not the shattering of the glass, crunching metal. Not even when they pull that sheet over your head, 
Not you know you're hovering above your body and screaming, try again, I'm alive, stop. Why are you, why are you putting me there? Not even they put you in a box, not even they put the box in the ground. <clears throat> and not even when you separate, not even when your body is left behind and you go up alone to Shemaim. Said the girl, the most painful moment in a human being's life is when I stand in front of the bathing Shemala and they hold up a picture, a picture of a great man, a Tamar a Balmidos, a man who changed himself and changed the very generation in which he lived. And they say to me, why isn't that you? Me? Why are you a great man? A man of sterling needles? A man of such sickness? What do you want from me? And says the girl, the most painful words a human being will ever hear are the words, that is you. That is you when you lived up to your potential. That is you when you lived up to your capacity. That is you had you become that which you were destined to be. But you see, that picture is a picture of me. It's not a picture of you, it's not a picture of Moshe Feinstein, not a picture of some Sofer. It's a picture of me, based on my strengths, my talents, and my abilities, based on the generation into which I was born, based on the household into which I was placed, based on the events that were to take shape in my life. This is my capacity, this is my abilities, and the only question they ask each of us when we're done here is how much of you did you become? 80%, 60%, 40%. I'm not compared to you, you're not compared to him, not one of us is compared to any other person. The only question is how much of your capacity did you reach, how much of your potential did you actualize? So with that as a background, here's question number two. Hillel is irrelevant. What difference does it make that one time in history there was a singular human being called Hillel, the great Hillel? It's irrelevant to the onion. The question is, Mr. Poor Man, Mr. Rich Man, what is your capacity? What is your abilities? What could you become? The onion isn't asked to become Hillel. The onion isn't asked to become the onion. How much of you could you reach? How much could you accomplish? So if question number one is that we don't need Hillel, question number two is that Hillel is the wrong standard of measurement. The poor man is not compared to Hillel. The rich man is not compared to Rosemar Carson. They're irrelevant to the issue of hand. I'd like to see if we can answer this tomorrow because I believe that this tomorrow gives us a framework to understand life. Let me share with you. How we're going to start. In ancient today, in many, many locales, much of the heavy lifting is still done by the elephant. You can see this Miami Venus all day being led by a trainer through the jungle, pulling, shrugging, logging, heavy, heavy upward trees, constantly carrying. All day long, the elephant works, and much of the hard labor in parts of Asia, still to today, is done by the elephant. Interestingly, at night, they tie this elephant to a peg in the ground, and the elephant remains there till the morning. Now, if you were looking at the elephant, and you were looking at the rope, you might have a following question. Why does the elephant just escape? The rope is not that strong, and the peg is not that deep in the ground. It's clear to any one of us that the elephant could easily just break out and escape. 
And by the way, many, even the elephant, would like to do just that, <clears throat> rather be foraging in the jungle eating. But the elephant cannot escape. Not think you want. When the elephant is born, it weighs about 250 pounds. The trainer ties it with a rope to a peg in the ground. And the baby elephant tries to escape. It tries once, it tries twice, and it sees that it can't do it. It tries for a week, and it tries for three weeks, it tries for a month, and then the elephant learns the lesson. The pain is just too deep, the rope is just too strong, and that lesson remains fixed in its mind. And even when the elephant weighs 14,000 pounds, even when it can plow through a cement wall like it's paper, it remains rooted in the ground because in its limited understanding, it cannot escape. Hence, that reality becomes what it lives with. And I believe that is an apt muscle for many, many people that you will meet. In this thing called life, I believe that you will meet many, many people who have tremendous capacity, tremendous talents, and don't become a fraction of what they could have been. Not because they don't have it within them, not because they couldn't do it, but because they remain shackled to very small versions of themselves. Like the mighty elephant tied to a peg in the ground, they remain limited by certain ceilings and certain self-fulfilling prophecies. They think of themselves in a very diminutive, small way, and that becomes their reality. And I believe that many, many people could accomplish leagues, miles beyond what they would be doing now, but it's this very small version. A regular guy, plain, simple Joe, can't expect me to break this, can't expect me to really set my sights high. And because they have these ceilings, they remain locked into it and don't accomplish a fraction of what they could have done. And every once in a while, you hear about someone who shatters through breaks that we believe. And I want to give you an example, an interesting example. For decades, one of the unbreakable records in sports was the four-minute mile. Athlete after athlete tried to run a mile in under four minutes, and no one could do it. Literally for a hundred years, this record remained untouchable. In 1914, Pablo Nuru from Sweden ran the mile in four minutes and ten seconds. Twelve years later, Gugahad brought it down to four minutes and six seconds. Carpenter, American fellow in the late 30s, brought it down to four minutes and four seconds, and it remained pegged. Athlete after athlete, international, decade after decade, no one could run a mile in under four minutes. Doctors began offering all kinds of theories. Man's skeletal structures all wrong. He creates much wind resistance. He can't take in enough air. It became an accepted medical fact that no human being can run a mile under four minutes. One Australian fellow, John Landy, ran the mile in four minutes and two seconds four times in a row. He said the words, it's a brick wall. It cannot be penetrated. May 5th, 1954, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. That record that remained untouchable, unbreakable for a hundred years, Roger Bannister broke it, and he ran the mile in under four minutes. Interestingly, 37 days later, John Mann, in his family fellow, four times in a row, four minutes and two seconds, the brick wall. 37 days after Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, 
and John Landy ran the mile faster than did Roger Bannister. Even more intriguing, within a year of Roger Bannister breaking four minute mile, 37 runners had run the mile in under four minutes. But nothing had changed. They didn't change diet, they didn't change technique, they didn't change running shoes. The only thing that changed was that Roger Bannister took something from the realm of impossible and he made it possible. Once he did it, and John Landy could, then 37 runners, and within a year after that, 300 runners have run the mile in under four minutes. And often time in life, you'll find that there are certain limiting beliefs, certain ceilings that hold people down, and it takes one human being to shatter it once he broke through than anyone can because he changed the reality for people. And not always is it an issue of athletes and dramatic events. I'll show you another example. In 1997, in Tallahassee, Florida, a young boy was involved in a car accident. The EMTs came rushing to the scene, the ambulances arrived, and they all gathered around the boy, but they couldn't help him because his arm was pinned under the wheel of a car. So they were all debating what to do. They had to get him to the hospital, but they couldn't extract his arm. Finally, one onlooker, without consulting, without asking, just runs over, bends down to the bumper of the car, lifts the car up, they quickly take the boy out, put him in the ambulance, send him to the hospital, patch him up, he's good to go. This story became a media sensation. Because the onlooker wasn't some early fireman or some trained medical technician. The onlooker was the boy's 63-year-old grandma. And when the story got out, it went from coast to coast throughout every newspaper. Dr. Charles Garfield read this story. And Dr. Charles Garfield was a psychologist, a sports coach, a personal coach. He had written a book. The book that he wrote was called Peak Performance. This book analyzes athletes who do things that are sound impossible. People lifting 1,200-pound boulders, people running endurance races that sound beyond belief. He spent his career studying athletes doing things that sound beyond human ability. And when he read this story, he decided he must interview this woman. He wants to understand what happened. So he says that he pulled her up, just asked for an interview, and she refused. He tried a second time, nothing to do. A third time, finally a fourth time, that the really persevering, she agreed to meet with him. So he describes that he came into her house, she sat down, and he began asking all the questions. What were you doing? What were you experiencing? What was going on in your mind? What were you, what were you going through when this was happening? And he describes that after he was done asking the questions that he wanted to ask, he turned to this woman and she, he said, Madam, there's one thing I just don't understand. What you did was heroic. You saved your grandson's life. What I don't understand is, why are you so reluctant to meet with me? Why are you so reluctant to speak about it? And he said that she turned to him and she said these words, If this, which I knew was impossible, I really could do, what does it say about the rest of my life? The person coach that he is, he began probing, he began asking, and she explained that she only had a high school education, she always dreamt about going on beyond that, 
So we've got the Charles Garfield's coaching. Mrs. Laura Schultz at the age of 63 began her university education and went on to teach college level science. But gentlemen, here's the point. You and I both know that grandmas don't lift cars. In the real world, it doesn't happen. And grandmas can't do that. It's not even going on possible until a grandmother sees her grandson under the wheel of the car, rushes over and says, it will happen. And she taps into strength and abilities that she never dreamt she had. She reaches into reservoirs that she was completely unaware of, and the human accomplishes something that he or she never dreamt they could have. And I heard my review of Shiva Fatal explain this more in that way. You know what it means that Hillel is Mahayadinium? The Oni is not compared to Hillel. But you know what Hillel did? Hillel changed the reality for all of mankind. He shattered that living belief. He was far more poor than you are, and he reached his potential. Mr. Oni, you now had a hero. You now had a man that you could look up to, and now had a man who could say, if he could do it, I could do it. When it says Hillel Amalizianium, it's because Hillel broke through that limiting belief and he changed reality for all mankind. And I was open to learn from my regular shiva over and over this concept. That if you wish to accomplish things in this world, if you wish to be someone, if you wish to leave this life having done something, you have to have heroes, you have to have goals, you have to have aspirations, you have to reach for the stars. And if you don't, it's almost guaranteed that you'll amount to very, very little. Now, gentlemen, I'd like to show you something interesting. This little device that many of us have, you probably are well aware of, has certain dangers to it. And you've probably have heard everybody for the past five or six or ten years tell you the dangers of this device are that it will bring you to portals that mankind never dreamt of. It will bring you to the depth of stone of Amor. First of all, I'd like to share with you, it will not bring you to the depth of stone of Amor. If you took the most despicable mushrasin of stone of Amor, if you took the real condolement of stone and put them in front of an unfiltered internet site for 30 minutes, they would fall on their faces in humility and say the words, we were no ones, we thought we were shasin, we were nobody, you guys are great, you know them, you, they're things we never even dreamt of, we never imagined, and everyone has it on their network, on the top of the it's unbelievable, you go to the sewers of Tibet, and you're right there in the sludge and sludge, we were no ones compared to you. So the danger of the stone is not going to take you to the depth of stone from over. But I'd like to share with you, I believe there's a much greater danger to this item than that. If you'd like to know what I consider one of the greatest dangers of any sort of media interaction, is that Western media today propagates a concept of mediocrity, of whatever. Ask the 20-year-old today the following question. Philip, what are your dreams? What are your aspirations? What do you want to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now? When you leave this earth, what do you want people to have said about you? I don't know. Whatever. Well, come on, what do you want to get you up in the morning? What are you working towards? What do you want to be? Whatever, Rabbi. Come on, don't go to bed. I should have dreams. Whatever. Get married. Have a kid or two. Whatever. You know, come on. Whatever. Whatever is a very sad description of your goals, your aspirations, what you want to be in life. 
spend a lot of time going to different funeral homes or to cemeteries. But if on your tombstone they write whatever, it's pretty sad. If you'd like to know what we're talking about, I'll share with you an interesting observation. What percentage of U.S. males, 35 and younger, have tattoos on their body? Anyone know? What percentage of U.S. male, males, 35 years and younger, have tattoos, one or two or ten on their body? Anyone know? Ten percent? Three percent? Huh? All right, it's at least 40 percent. Now, I want to share with you what this means. If you are a U.S. Marine, and you tattoo on your shoulder the Marine Corps, that's because you believe in it. That's because it defines who you are, and I understand that. If you are a sailor, and your life is the ship, and you tattoo on your forearm the USS Carolina, I understand that. I went into a convenience store, and there was a fellow behind the counter who was wearing sleeves. You guys know what sleeves are, right? Not, 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 mm -hmm. not the sleeves means tattoos for shoulder turrets. Okay. He had sleeves on, and I, I can't resist. I was love hearing what people are. And so I said to him that conversation started that you have to say, wow, that's a nice tattoo. And he starts bragging up this one and that one, and where he got this one, and where he got that one. And at some point he said, wow, I see Barbara's name is right there on your, on your forearm. Uh, tell me, does, does Barbara have your name on her forearm? <laughs> nah. Bob is way too smart for that. Okay, let's process this. Here's a fellow tattooed onto his arm of Barbara's name, knowing fully well that he's going to drop her, she's going to drop him, and she will be history long, not long from now. He's now, let's call him 20 years old. What's going to happen when he's 25, when he's 30, when he's 35? And for the rest of his life, he has Barbara's name. We don't even remember who she is. Tattooed on his arm when he's 45 and he's 55. Here's the question. Sir, what are you thinking? Do you realize that tattoos are permanent? Do you realize that this is forever? And gentlemen, what I'm saying to you is that people don't put tattoos of meaningful things on their body. I took my child boldly a little while back and I got to see the Bronx Zoo because the guy in the alley next to us was wearing shorts and tattooed on his legs with the lions and the tigers and the bears and everything imaginable. So here's the question. If you're using your body as an etch sketch you know, a scratch pad, just pop it all off, wherever you want, wherever you can place them, what do you think you're going to be thinking two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now? Anyone know what tattoo regret is? <laughs> tattoo regret is when you wake up and say, what was I, what was my problem? More than 50% of people who put on tattoos have tattoo regret. So watch this. Only a Jewish boy can think of this. Why don't we arrange, make something called removable ink? Right? Normally, to remove a tattoo is very, very difficult. Laser treatment, grafts. The fellow who sponsored this book, Cornwall, Jay Cornwall, was a plastic surgeon. And he explained to me what's involved. Many tattoos you can't take off at all. And in either case, it's very expensive and very difficult. A fellow came up with the perfect solution. Removable adhesive. Watch what happens. You micro-encapsulate the ink. So each drop of ink is actually contained within a tiny, tiny little plastic bubble. When they insert the ink onto your skin, it's there. But one laser treatment and a micro-encapsulation, a little tiny bubble, pops. The ink just sort of kind of 
dissipates out and distributes into your skin. Within a week or two, it's gone. A perfect solution, and the fellow assumed he'd make a billion dollars. But here's what happened. No one was willing to pay the extra 20 to 25% for the ink. And the people who own the tattoo parlors explained why no one wanted it. If a fellow comes in here for a tattoo, he wants something permanent. If he didn't want something permanent, he wouldn't get a tattoo. And no one will use the ink. So I want to share with you what's going on here. In the United States of America, and Western civilization in general, there is such a temporal, now and now, moment only attitude. And right now, I'm here, right now, whatever, right now, I want this, and I'm going to put it on, and I don't think about a week from now, I don't think about a year from now, and I'm not at all focused. And the result is very, very intriguing. You don't get people who dream anymore, you don't get people who set goals, you don't get people who aspire for things. And I want to share with you that if you find a human being who succeeds in any endeavor in life, whether it's sports, whether it's business, whether it's academics, whether it's art, any endeavor in life, find me a great person, I'll find you a person who set lofty goals, who dreamt, who said, I'm worth it, I can accomplish. I'll share with you an interesting example. I was a little bit of a fan of Muhammad Ali. Growing up, I was a big fan, and I used to watch him off the blocks. I don't want to date myself over here, but he was fighting when I was a kid. In any case, I was a member of the Shiva of the Muslim world, and each week, someone in the Muslim world would present a certain concept. They'd present something from a footage, and we'd go to Muslim concept, and then as a group, we'd discuss how to use these concepts and apply it to our lives. So the first week someone brought in a Hazal, next week someone brought in a Nasakim information, next week someone brought in an Al-Qasadikim. When it was my week to present, I walked into the room, and I was not carrying the Qumish, nor carrying the Qumar. I walked in carrying a picture sports book. Now there's a pretty serious group of guys, and when I walked in carrying this picture sports book, I got some dirty looks as they like, say for what you want. So I took the book, and I put it down on the table, and I opened it up to the center section where Muhammad Ali is holding up the world championship heavyweight belt. Those looks turned pretty dirty as an archie, what's the deal? And I said, gentlemen, tell me what you see. Alright, we get it. Frazier had been world champion. Ali just won the fight. What do you want? And I said, that's what I want. You see, what you guys see when you look in that picture is you see glory. You see victory. What you don't see is that Muhammad Ali was driven from that fight directly to the hospital where he spent three weeks in a hospital bed. You see the glory. You see all of the honor. But you don't see that the world champion got so beat up in that fight, so hurt, that for 21 days he could not get out of his hospital bed. And I wanted to share with my friends something interesting that day. Muhammad Ali used to say the words, I hated every minute of training. I hated every minute of training, but I said, it's worth to suffer now to be a champion for the rest of my life. Interesting words. But that wasn't really the great secret that I took from Muhammad Ali. If you know anyone who boxes, anyone in your box? No, it's a little too, angry, it's a little too rough again. In any case, if you know anyone who boxes, or some of you know professional boxers, they're all ugly. Right? The nose gets flat. 
and the nose starts, the ears start stretching from ear to ear. Every boxer carries scars. No matter how good you are, you get beat up, you get smashed, you turn very, very different looking after a little while in the ring. Except for Muhammad Ali. Pretty boy, Ali. Untouched. You could watch the punches. He would duck. He would move back. He just wasn't there. So like a butterfly sting like a bee. The guy was the cleanest fighter in boxing. He just never got hit. Muhammad Ali estimates that in his professional fighting career, he got hit in the head one million times. That means one million times a 220-pound Ra smashed him full force in the jaw. That's pretty boy out there, the guy who never got hit. And what I wanted to share with my friends that day was one line that Ali said. He said that when you see a professional prize fighter knock down, he doesn't come up for the count, no one understands it. it almost never happens that he's not unconscious. When you see the referee count to ten and the guy doesn't come up, it means he got hurt. He lost courage. He lost heart. He doesn't have the guts to get back in the fight because a professional prize fighter is in such top condition, such good shape, that the idea of knocking him unconscious almost never happens. He just got the fight knocked out of him, doesn't have the guts to get back in the fight. And gentlemen, this episode, I believe, is essential for life. You have to learn how to set goals. You have to learn how to say, I can do things. I can accomplish. I expect things of myself. And you have to learn how to take a punch. Because if you find a successful human being in any endeavor in life, I guarantee they have both of these. They had very high aspirations, very high goals, and they knew how to play this game called life. The game called life is played by getting in that ring, knowing full well that you're going to get knocked down, and being willing and able to get up off the canvas and get back in the fight again. And gentlemen, this is not a Muslim truth about learning Torah, which it certainly should be as well. It's a concept of success in life. Electric light bulb. Who invented it? Thomas Edison, right? Thomas Edison was a wealthy man. He had his lab set up where Edison, right? Edison, New Jersey. He had his lab set up where he invented the photograph, where he invented the receiver for the telegraph. He was a very established man. In the late 1880s, he decided, wait, electricity. If we could form a, some type of resistance, it'll flame, and that can be a source of light. Instead of using kerosene, instead of using gas, what if we made an electric light bulb? But here was the problem. He looked for the right filament that would give off light, cause resistance, but wouldn't burn out. So he tried a few. He tried cotton, burned out too quickly. Tried pen, burned out too quickly. He tried wool, he tried linen, he tried metals, he tried every imaginable element that he could think of, and every one of them burnt out within two to twelve hours, not one of them was commercially viable. Anyone like to take a guess how many different elements did Thomas Edison attempt before he discovered the secret? One thousand. One thousand? A thousand? No. Thomas Edison, according to the biographer, tried ten thousand different elements. What that means in plain language is he put it into the bowl, slept under his desk because he waited for the result, woke up and said, drag, it didn't work again. 
And what that means in very simple terms is that 9,999 times the man failed until he discovered tungsten, bingo, it won. Do you know that Thomas Edison was not the brightest man in his generation? In electricity and understanding the engineering concepts, he was by far overshadowed by many people. Westinghouse wasn't a brilliant guy, but far outshadowed Edison. Telstra also was much smarter. But Thomas Edison had the two criteria that a successful human being needs. He had dreams and he knew that it would cost him a lot of effort and he was willing to fight, get back in that ring, get knocked down, and get back in again. And gentlemen, I can't stress this enough because everyone has this dream. Oh, I'll be a star athlete. I'll be a tremendous Tom O'Huffman. I'll be a successful businessman. Yeah, just wait till me. I'll get a business million to come running in because I'm a great guy and I have dreams. Do you know that the most successful people in life almost invariably are not the top talent? The really, really successful people are not the naturally gifted athletes or students or businessmen. Because when it comes really easy, that kind of guy gets one punch, gets knocked down, and says, that's it, I'm out of here. But usually the second tier. The guys have a lot of talent, but they're not the super, super bright, not the most talented. It's the people who are willing to say, okay, I get it. It means I've got to get back in again, fail, and be prepared to try again, fail, and be prepared to try all the time. And gentlemen, if you're not sure that I might read a business biography, finding a successful businessman who changed the marketplace or made a lot of money, and I guarantee you find a person who failed many, many times along the way, probably went bankrupt quite a number of times, and I'll share with you one more observation. I want to share with you a quote, and then I want to tell you who said the quote. Here's the quote. Success consists of going from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. Again, success consists of going from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. Anyone who said the quote? Anyone? Take a guess. Huh? Edison, want to be a bad choice? Lincoln? Okay, I'll tell you who said the quote. Let me tell you a little bit about the man who said it. The man was a college professor. The man was a historian. The man won the Nobel Prize for history. The man was knighted by the Queen of England. The man was also the Prime Minister of England. The man was Sir Winston Churchill. Historians credit Sir Winston Churchill with saving the free world. Historians tell us that if not for Churchill standing up there, Nazism would have won the day. In 1933, when Adolf Hitler came to power, Henry Chamberlain was the Prime Minister of England. And Chamberlain's attitude was appeasement. Give Hitler what he wants. He'll leave him strong. People will get into him and he'll go away. There was one sane voice in England. From the parliament floor, Winston Churchill screamed, the man is a menace to society. He's a menace to civilization. And no one listened to him. The war began in 39. America didn't enter until 41. And those who know what happened tell us that if it weren't for Winston Churchill's galvanizing forces, courage, and determination, Hitler would have won the war. May 1945, Germany surrendered. July 1945, Winston Churchill found himself voted out of office. 
the man who brought himself to England's finest hour, the man who saved the free world, found himself on the streets without a job. A good wartime prime minister. These are times of peace. We need a different sort of leader. He found himself without a job down and out. He then went on to write that six treaties work that won the Nobel Prize in history, went on to fight communism. But that was his life. And gentlemen, what I'm saying to you is if you find a human being who succeeds in any endeavor in life, I guarantee you find a person who set lofty goals and knew the secret of success, which is getting in the fight, getting hit, and getting back in. And there's a reason why I'd like to share that message with you folks today. I meet with people from many different walks of life, in many, many situations, and for some reason, people are very candid with me and tell me their life story. If I had a dollar for every 30-year-old or 40-year-old who says, oh, I wish I could shape my life differently. I wish I had made different life decisions. But you see, gentlemen, when you're 35 years old, you're married with a bunch of kids, you're not making major life changes. You guys now have a unique opportunity. You're away from the busyness, away from Western civilization's power of whatever, that dampening you, just be a slumber. Come on, we're all just a bunch of occupants of the planet. There's some who walk on four feet, some who walk on two feet, but we're all the same. That heavy, heavy sense of mediocrity that Western civilization espouses and keeps people in check with is gone. You're in an environment where you could determine what you want to do with your life. You could look in the mirror and say, what's within you? And gentlemen, this is the secret. You're supposed to look inside yourself and ask yourself, what did Hashem create me to do? What are my strengths? What are my talents? Not am I smarter than that guy, can I be better than this guy, make more money than this guy? What are my strengths, my talents? You're supposed to look in the mirror and say, what did Hashem ask of me? What are my capacities? What are my abilities? What do I expect of myself? I was open to hear of Avon Plan 4, you say, Hesped, for his father, Mordecai Gifter. Mordecai Gifter, he tells me Shiva was born in the United States of America. Very unusual for those days of a girl born in America. And in some more, before he said that if you went into the yeshiva and you went into a Mordecai Gifter's room, you saw a dorm room much like anyone else's, except one difference. There was a mirror on the wall. Now, many of the boys had mirrors on the wall. Around this mirror, there were pictures of all the people that were Mordecai Gifted and wanted to be like. Rebarb there, Gishinishka, all the gadolim of his days that he aspired to be like. But especially before, that was not the unusual part about the mirror. It was the words over the mirror. Over the mirror were written the words, Why not you? And apparently every day, young Mordecai Gifted would go over the mirror, look at the people they wanted to be like, look in the eyes in front of them, Read the words, why not you? And there was no reason because it became a what of that gifted tells her Shiva, Godly Soul. Gentlemen, that ability to walk over to a mirror and ask yourself what's inside you? What did Hashem put me on this planet to accomplish? What do I expect of myself? Where do I want to be five years now, ten years now? Where do I want to be as a father? Where do I want to be as a grandfather? What kind of track in life do I want? What do I want people saying about me when I've left this planet? You have a choice now to make those types of decisions. And I almost guarantee you, once you leave Yeshiva, you won't have those kind of choices again. 
Because once you get into the career track and the dizziness and the whatever, you will be on a certain path. And my friends, this is a unique and golden opportunity that you have being in Yeshiva, and especially with the opportunity to learn. <clears throat> because Lumina Torah has a certain strengthening, it sets you in a show of glow, it gives you emotional strength, fortitude, it makes you into a different human being. And I guarantee, when we leave this earth, you and I will not be discussing how much money we made or what famous people we became. In general, I'll show you one more thought. What do you think it's like to be that money, to be that poor man? The man who became whatever. He just became just a regular Joe, did what everyone else did, and for years, and years and years, he's saying the words, I wish I could have been a Tom Huffman. I wish I could have learned. I wish I could have accomplished. I wish I could have been a great human being. But what can I do? I'm a poor man. I have to work. I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I'm an Indian teacher. I have to be very, very busy. I have to work long, hard hours. And he said those words month after month, year after year, until he almost believed them. And then he comes in front of the Beisdun Shamala, and they hold up that picture, and he sees that compared to what he could have been, he's a nothing. He's a diminutive, teeny little thing, and he could have been great. Could you imagine the pain? And again, I want to share with you that at this moment in your life, you have the opportunity to grow, to make real, serious life commitments, to challenge yourself, demand of yourself, and set your path in life. And I'd like to share with you a guarantee. As a Jewish person, if you're not deeply rooted in Limanat Torah, you will never reach a fraction of your potential. And you know why? Because there are many, many currents out there, many, many things that pull at you. And if you're not deeply rooted in learning, and Limanat Torah is not one of the key essences of your existence, you will float like chain on the water, like a cork, and you go back and forth, you'll get older and older, not much wiser, and go through its existence and whatever. And a very strange thing happens if you're in Yeshiva, you're in Shir, and you put the brain on on, you start learning, you start studying, you start growing, you become a different human being, you set different life goals, different requirements of yourself, you expect different things, you look in that mirror and you say, what do I have within me? What do I expect for myself? And you become a vastly different human being. We did a study in Harvard Business School. I think you guys will appreciate this. The study was very simple. In 1979, they did an exit survey, and they analyzed the results 10 years later. 1979, they asked the graduate class of Harvard Business School one question. Have you set goals and put them in writing for your future? This is what they discovered. 13% of the class had goals. Goals. Albeit not writing, they had goals. Only 3% of the class had goals in writing. Okay? 10 years later, they looked at the class another time. And this is what they discovered. The 13% of the class that had goals, albeit not writing, but had goals, were earning, on average, twice as much as the other 87%. But interestingly, the 3% who had goals in writing were earning on average 10 times as much as the other 97% of the class. But here's the interesting part. There was no other measurable difference between the groups. 
no difference in IQ, no difference in test scores, no difference in business acumen. The only difference between the 3% and the 97% was the fact that the 3% put gold in writing. And gentlemen, this is one of the keys. See, I hope you're hearing something of what I'm saying. And many people when they hear this kind of message say, yeah, that's right, I can be someone. I don't have to be whatever. And they get really psyched up, and they get really motivated, and they walk out, and like a puff of smoke, it's gone. If you'd like to make yourself into a being for you, learn this secret. Write the message down. When I say the message, not my words, but your goals. Take a goal, write long-term, medium, and short-term goals, commit it to writing, Give yourself a timetable, make yourself accountable. There should be goals in learning, goals in the way you've done, goals in the way you act with other goals in how people look at you and how you look at others. And when you write concrete, measurable goals, you become a very different person because you begin realizing them, you begin actualizing them. As the Mara shares with us a very unique perspective. The Oni and the Usher could have done much more. Their failure was because they didn't set their sights high enough. They didn't use heroes. You have to have people that you look up to, have to expect things of yourself, and you have to know how to take a punch. And I want to close with one last thought. What happens when the elephant discovers the truth? What happens when the elephant discovers that the rope is just not strong enough, the peg is just not deep enough to hold it? You like to know what happens? It was 1944, Hartford, Connecticut, Barnum, Bailey, Park, the Big Tent, set up a circus. In those days, the circus would move from town to town, and they literally erected this very large tent, and under the tent they put the three rings, and the circus would continue. In those days, it was to coat the tent with paraffin. Now, paraffin is water-resistant, but it's also very flammable. When they parked the big tent in Hartford, Connecticut, and the circus was on, no one is quite clear how it happened, but somehow the tent itself caught flame. Smokes, flame, people began yelling, screaming, and the way they were running out, 126 people died that day. When they finally put out the fire and started putting things together, the trainer made an interesting discovery. The herd of elephants that were working in the circus had been tied up at the time, because the smoke, the fire, people yelling, the elephants broke out. And the trainer couldn't tie them back again. Because when the trainer tried to tie them back to the peg, the elephant just walked out. The elephant had learned the secret. It learned the trick. And Barnum and Bailey had to retire that entire herd of elephants and bring in another herd of elephants who hadn't learned that little trick. Gentlemen, would you like to know what the single most enjoyable activity you'll ever do in life is? It's something called growth. When you set goals, when you set your sights high, and you meet 75% of it, 80% of it, and you start changing, you start growing, there's an inner sense of joy, a satisfaction. And you know why? Because that's what Shem Pichon planned to do. Shem didn't put you on a planet for whatever, go hang out for 80 years, you know, make some money, spend some money, make some more money, spend that money, and then you die. Come on, we'll discuss what you did. Hashem did not create a single human being from the outward. Hashem put us on a planet to grow, to accomplish, to excel us, and each of us have unique talent and abilities, and the greatest pride that Western civilization says to you is, you're a no one and a nothing, and don't even bother trying, because you're just another slum rat like the rest of us. If you accept that, go for it. 
you will accomplish exactly that, and you'll be exactly that. But if you're willing and able to look in the mirror and ask yourself, what is within me? What's my capacity? What's my strength? And then you know how to set your sights high, you know how to set concrete real goals, and you know the secret that you're going to get hit and knocked down and have to get back in the fight again, you start changing, you start growing, and there's an inner sense of joy and happiness. And more than that, you learn the great secret. You're not bound by these ceilings. Like the mighty elephant who is tied to the rope, you begin escaping, and you have a whole different understanding of life. I'm going to show you great to the wisdom, the ability to put this into practice. Before I stop, I want to mention that I'm in Israel on a book tour, believe it or not. Um, there are two books that, um, that I wrote that are for sale today. One is called Stop Surviving and Start Living. Okay, so, okay, I'll tell you what, what this, this story of this book. The greatest philosophical question of the 21st century. Anyone know it? What's the greatest philosophical question of the 21st century? Anyone know? What's fun life? That would be pretty good. That's deep. The great philosophical question of the 21st century goes like this. How you doing? I try, try to friend. How you doing? How you doing? I'm hanging in there. How you doing? Surviving. Best of her. How you doing? I'm alive. Now, Jim, these are not people who like have terminal cancer or 25-year jail cells, sentences that they're facing. Regular people living in a world in freedom and opportunity with wealth, health, and everything. Their description of their life, how you doing, surviving, hanging in there, I'm alive. If that's the description of your life, I've got to say, in any case, this book is called Stop Surviving and Start Living. It's based on the first paragraph of Sharon that deals with the big issue Question of life, why should create us, what what's life about, why is it suffering, why is it pain, understanding why she gives different life circumstances to different people. And it's a I highly recommend the book. Book number two is called Shoes on the Top of Finding and Keeping Your Soul This is a marketing ploy. Anyone interested in all marketing? This is a marketing ploy and was studied. Explain to you what I mean. I want to write a book about women and talking for young people. Now, if you write a book and call it The Moon and you talk to young people, what happens to the book? But it dies, no one reads it, right? So, I wrote a book and called it Finding and Keeping Your Soulmate. Now, every seminary girl says, Ooh, I'm an angel now to buy the book. And they discover the following. The first 50 pages has to do with Shaduva, with the right attitudes, etc. And then all of a sudden, it breaks into this whole center section about Amuna and Abitaha, nothing to do with Shaduva, that's very deep and very interesting. Before she knows that she's deep into it and discussing issues of things and doubting what's Hashem's role, what's my role. And then it gives you a thorough understanding of Amunitaha. And then the last 50 pages are about Shaduva, so she doesn't feel like she's fooled because she sees the target, not a bait and switch, but I can sell it. Okay, now, now that I've told you the remarkable story, I'll explain to you why I told you that. If you guys, anyone here uh, planning to get married next uh, three weeks? Six weeks? Oh, okay. So, buy this book. No, no, it's too late. We're getting married next three weeks together. Anyway, if you are going out, it's a good book. If you're not going out, it's a better book. Why? I used to, I taught high school for about 15 years. I went to grade, and I would tell my guys I talk about marriage. Why well, I took my marriage because I told them if you're going to prepare for marriage under the chuppah, you're a little late in the game. If you like a good understanding as to what the right attitude should be when you're going out, what you should be looking for, and then more importantly, the Amuna and Tuffer Basics, I think this book has a lot to offer. In any case, each book is 40 shekel. If you buy one, you get the second copy at half price at 60 shekel. So you can buy them at 20 shekel. So you can buy the combination of two. Um, again, one is 40, two together are 60. Um, yeah. 
can, someone can just stand, maybe and take the money. And if anyone has questions or thoughts or want to discuss something, please come forward. Oh, another thing I forgot to say. This is the shoes. All the shoes are available. You can download the podcast. They're all free. One thing you have to remember is it's self funding. T H E S H N Music.com. If you can't remember, you can take a car magnet. Um, this car magnet is a school. If you don't have a car, you put it on your bike, and the next day you drive driveway, suddenly shows up a Ferrari. <laughs> but you can still take the car magnet for free, and all the shoes are more free to download, and again, the books are available for sale. Thank you. Okay, I just want to thank Shaker. I just want to grab it for right now. The books are going to come downstairs to uh, the lunchroom, so everyone is welcome to, uh, to purchase the books and pick up Shaker. I'm glad to